really, everything applies. And that's what we're going to see. So when I think of the many responsibilities we have as fathers as well as privileges, one of the things is to be the head of a household, um, to be the leader, to be the one who guides the direction of a family. It's a huge responsibility. Um, it's, the, it's the responsibility of fathers to make sure that the family is provided for. And so not just, not just immediately, but as much as possible, right, for the long run. And really this idea of providing for the long term, an, an investment in the future, that really is the subject that we find ourselves at here in 2 Peter uh, chapter 3 today. So the title that I've given the message is Long-Term Investing, and that really is one of the responsibilities of a father, is it not? I mean, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 14, the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. And so certainly there's some laying up that should be done. Parents need to be investing. Parents need to be saving. Parents need to be providing. And certainly, arguably, right, the greatest potential investment, the longest lasting investment, right, is a legacy of spiritual maturity. And that is the theme of what we've been studying. The, the study that we've undertaken and are almost over with, by the way, is in the book of Second Peter is the theme of spiritual growth and maturity. And in chapter number one, we saw the development of spiritual growth and maturity, specifically through these seven stages of spiritual growth that are laid out for us in chapter number one. And then in chapter number two, we saw the deterrent to spiritual maturity, and we looked specifically at the issues of false prophets and false teachers and sinful behaviors and things that will keep you from realizing full and complete spiritual maturity. In this last chapter that we're in, chapter number three, what we're seeing is the demonstration of spiritual maturity. Literally, what does it look like? And so what we're going to look at today is spiritual maturity is demonstrated in a type of an investment strategy. Okay, so it's summertime, and we're all excited that it's summertime. We finally get a break in the weather. Y'all have worked very hard through your year. You're, if you're fathers, you're, you're probably planning for your family vacations if you haven't already taken it. Right, So that means you've got to take time and plan. It means you've got to do some work. It means you need to save. It means you do some research and preparation. And then afterward, after you've done all that, well, then you can rest. Right, That's the time to rest. Because that's what a mature person does. You work now, you save, and you plan and prepare so that later you can have a well-deserved time of rest. Well, the physical always illustrates the spiritual right. And so in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, we've looked at that in the weeks prior, uh, it talks about prophecy. It talks about the coming of the kingdom. It talks about judgment. It talks about destruction, right? And so when we get to verses 11 through 14, and that's what we're going to be looking at today, what we're going to see is that deals with the practical application of prophecy. And we're going to look at it with this theme of investing. Listen, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, this life here on earth is our time to work, right? And we get to rest later. That's what the Bible says in 2 Thessalonians 1, verse number 7. And to you who are troubled, rest with us. When? When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are here on this earth after salvation to work for the Lord. There's no discharge in this war. There's no retirement from service to the Lord as long as we're breathing free air. We are to work for the Lord and our time of rest will come in the dispensation that is designed for rest and that's the millennium at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we work now, we prepare, we plan with a long-term investment strategy right, so that we can rest when we all get there. So with that in mind, I want you just to follow along. I know we referenced briefly, starting in verse number 8, but I'm going to start reading in verse number 8 and then go through verse number 14. Go ahead and follow along in Second Peter chapter 3. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day as with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us. We're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, 
in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also, and the works that are therein, shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye, ye may be found of him in peace, without spot, and blameless. So let's just go to the Lord. Let's pray and let's ask him to show us exactly what we need to do with our lives here and now, as it clo- so clearly is laid out in this passage of Scripture. And Heavenly Father, I do pray that as we come near to the end of our entire study of this wonderful book of Scripture, Second Peter, that you will help us to see exactly what it is you want us to see. You speak very clearly. You speak our language. You, in fact, have written it down. We don't even have to doubt or wonder what it is you said. And you told us that since we can see what's coming, man, what manner of persons ought we to be? And when I think about how I'm choosing to invest my life today, Lord, I want to do that with an eye towards the future. And Lord, a lot of us in our physical lives maybe haven't always done a great job of investing money in a retirement account or some of those things, but like any good counselor would tell us, well, there's no time like today to begin. And so, Lord, I pray for those that are here today and maybe in their spiritual walk with you, they've yet to store up anything. They've yet to lay aside anything for the future in eternity. But today's as good a day as any. Let's just start today. And so, Lord, I pray that you will speak to us. I pray that your spirit would be our teacher and I pray that we would humbly receive and apply the things that you show us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, our first point that we're going to look at, I'm calling the investment prospectus. Okay, so that's an investment term, and basically what we're going to look at is the forecast of the future. The idea of a prospectus, an investment, is the idea that it's going to give you an idea of what you can expect, how this investment uh, profile is going to perform, right? And so you get these ideas from these things. We're going to start off in verse number 11 where it says, Seeing all these things shall be dissolved. So seeing, right, means you're going to look into the future. It's going to give you the forecast of what's coming down the road. And the these things that he's referring to, you go back to verse number 10, where it's talking about all the physical things, the heavens and the earth and all the elements thereof shall be melted with fervent heat. So seeing and understanding, looking forward to the future and understanding that all these physical things that are around us that we so enjoy are going to burn up. This is the prospectus. This is what we need to understand. So the question is, why then would you want to invest in things that are going to burn up? I mean, I think about one of the greatest scams of scandals of, you know, the recent history and and that whole thing with Enron, that large company. and, and, And I'm sure that the people who invested in Enron, had they known that it was going to go belly up in illegal activities and lose all their wealth, Well, they never would have invested in that. Why would you invest in something that you know is ultimately not going to pay out? Why would you do that? Nobody would necessarily do that, right? So again, the physical illustrates the spiritual. And in our spiritual lives, why would you invest invest in things now that you know aren't going to last, right? I mean, you can't take it with you when you die. I mean, I perform a lot of funerals, and I've yet to see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. But you know what you can do is you can send it on ahead. That's what you can do. And so Jesus gives us the advice, right? He tells us what we need to know in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 21, where he says, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be, also. So this should be your perspective and your investment strategy. Because when you invest in things that will eventually burn, well, okay, that is a short-term investment. And lest you leave here thinking that I said something that I didn't say, let me help you to understand. For example, if you're a good planning father of your family, 
You're going to plan for a physical retirement on planet Earth. Yes, it's not eternity. Is there anything wrong with that? No, but understand that your retirement investment, your 401k, whatever it is you have, that is a short-term investment, right? I mean, you need to prepare for the days when your body is so aging, you're not able to work anymore, or you just want to be able to not have to work anymore in your physical life. That's fine, but that is a short-term investment. What you need is retirement income for eternity, What you need is some collateral that's actually going to last beyond this physical life. And that's what the Lord warns us of. So in verse number 12 of 2 Peter, it says, Looking for and hasting unto the day of God. So in your notes, I put this. As believers, we are to look forward. We are to look forward. We're not to look backward. And God forbid, friends, hear this, we are not to look around us. Isn't that what we do? Probably the greatest hindrance to you investing in eternity is you get so caught up looking around you at what's happening right here and right now that you forget to keep looking forward. And the Lord keeps telling us to look forward. What are we to look unto? Well, it says the day of God. Well, that is the millennium. That is the day of the Lord. That is the context directly that we get. Out of 2 Peter chapter 3, if you went forward into Revelation chapter 21 and verse number 1, it also says in verse 13 of 2 Peter, the new heavens and the new earth. Revelation 21.1 makes it clear, coming after Revelation chapter 20, the new heavens and the new earth come after the burning up of this earth. That happens at the end of that millennial day. So we're to look forward to the millennial day, but we're to look forward even beyond the millennial day to a new heavens and a new earth. What about us as the church age? What are we to look forward to? Well, we're also to look forward to the rapture of the church. Titus chapter 2 and verse number 13. We are to look for that blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. These things that we are told to look for are not things behind us, and they're not things around us. They're things that are out in front of us. These are things that you cannot see physically right the only way you can see them is with the eye of faith and so hebrews 11 and verse number one makes it very clear that faith is right it's the evidence of things that we can't otherwise see physically right it's the substance of the very things that we hope for faith is the thing that gives us eyes to be able to see things that are yet future just by believing God at his word. So further down in Hebrews chapter 11, it speaks of many people who walked by faith. It talks about Abraham. And in verse number 10, it says, He looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And a few verses down from that, it goes on in kind of a summary, verse 13. These all died in faith. Notice, not having received the promises, speaking of some of the physical manifestations that were promised, even Abraham and the land grant and some of those things, physically in this life, on this earth, now, these people did not all receive all their promises, right? But having seen them afar off, notice they were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed. They agreed with God that they are strangers and pilgrims on this earth like the old song says this world is not my home i'm just a passing through right my my home is out there beyond the blue like my i i i live my life now with a view towards the future i live my life now looking for what's coming ahead back to hebrews 11 verse 14 for they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country And truly, if they had been mindful of the country from whence they came out, historically, for example, Abraham, Mesopotamia, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country. What's that? Well, that's a heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city, a new heaven, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem. And by faith, we see it today. So proper spiritual investing must be long-term. It must be eternal. So as believers, we're to look forward, but also as believers, 
we're to take action now. We need to take action now. It not only says looking for, but it also says hasting unto. Hasting unto. In other words, to make haste is to act now. It's to act quickly while there's still time. Hurry up. Let's get on board. Let's get involved today. So Paul said it this way in Philippians chapter 3, starting in 13. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as be perfect, mature, complete, grown up. Let us, therefore, friends, as many of us as be mature, perfect, be thus minded, be minded like Paul to press toward the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us be thus minded, and if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. He goes down a little further in that chapter in verse number 20, and he says, why? For our conversation is in heaven. That's not on earth. From whence we also, oh, we're looking for something again. We're looking for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our conversation is in heaven. Does not just mean that we talk about heaven. It means that literally our lifestyle, our behavior is based in the fact that we are actually, literally, although spiritually, currently seated in heavenly places. That's what it says in Ephesians 2 and verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, amen, by grace you are saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So this is part of the problem of the Christian life because you find yourself living this life after salvation in this world surrounded by all the challenges that exist. And yet you are also literally spiritually sitting this very moment, not just at 878 Commercial Avenue Southwest. You are seated spiritually in heavenly places because you are in Christ Jesus. That's why. And so literally you have your conversation in heaven. So what am I supposed to do about that? Well, he goes on in Ephesians in chapter 4 and he says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, I beg you, that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you're called. I mean, this is so important. This becomes a theme of Paul's writings. He goes into Colossians chapter 3 and he starts in verse number 1 and he says, If ye then be risen with Christ. Well, that's just another way of saying, If ye be truly born again. Are you a, a true born again believer in Jesus Christ? Well, then this is you. If ye then be truly saved. What are you to do? Seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. That's where you're to look. That's what you're to make haste unto. Those are the things that you're to set your affections on, right? Verse 2, set your affections on the things above, not on the things on the earth. Why? For you're dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then she, shall ye also appear with him, in glory. So I want you to notice something. Listen, if you are risen with Christ, if you are seated in heavenly places, if your conversation is in heaven, then we are to live our life in such a manner that we seek those things, we set our affections on those things, we actually lay up in store for those days, and we live our lives in such a way such that Christ, notice how it says it in verse 4, who is our life? Do you remember when you got saved? Do you remember what happened that day that you got saved? You may not have characterized it in this way, but literally what happened, if you truly surrendered your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, what happened is that there was a heavenly transaction that took place. And that transaction is, is that you surrendered all you know of you to receive all you know of Him. Sometimes we refer to it as an exchanged life. And so God exchanged with you he took your sinful life, which is worth worse than nothing on an eternal scale, and gave you in place his perfect, holy, righteous, eternal life. Praise the Lord that he did that. But he did not do that, friends, 
just so that he could have first place in your life or second place in your life or third place in your life. Do you know that Jesus shouldn't be first place in your life? Because you shouldn't have a second or a third or a fourth. He said Jesus is your life. He's all the places. And if he's not involved in the decision-making tree that you have for every single place you have in your life, well, you're not really investing in eternity. You're not really living it out the way he wants you to live it out. And so you set your affections up there, and he, being the Lord of your life, influences every single decision that you make in every area of your life, from the most mundane to the most significant. He needs to be involved in every single thing. Let's go back to Colossians 3, pick it up at verse 5. What does it look like? How is it supposed to play out in my life? Well, verse 5, mortify, therefore, put to death your members which are upon the earth. What are those? Well, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Stop there for a second. Because our covetousness, oh, all these things are bad. I don't need to define these terms for you. All these things are bad, but our covetousness, that's that sneaky little thing that works its way into your heart that says, I want that. I have to have it. I have to have it now. I'm going to run up my credit limit to get it. I don't want to wait. I have to have these things. If that's your attitude, and it creeps up on us all the time, the Bible says that's equivalent to idolatry. It means that you're seeking something other than the Lord at that moment of your life. And it's our covetousness that causes us to spend all our time and all our energy and all our resources to invest in things we enjoy now rather than to invest in things that are eternal. But that's not where we're to put our affections. That's not the things that we're supposed to seek. Covetousness is identified as idolatry. Verse number six. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked sometime when ye lived to them. Okay, before you knew the Lord, you used to do that, but not anymore, right? But now, verse eight, Ye also put off, not just those things which are very bad, some, some internal attitude issues now, right? All these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that you've put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man. Well, who's the new man? Well, it's the Lord Jesus Christ, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond or free. But Christ is all and in all. Listen, man, don't invest in that junk. It's not going to last. The prospectus of this investment strategy is not good, right? Why is that? Well, because in verse 13, back to 2 Peter, right, we're supposed to be looking towards the new heaven and the new earth. It says, wherein dwelleth what? Righteousness. Well, all of those things that the old man manifests, well, they're just not righteous, right? And the new heaven and the new earth and the things of the future, oh, righteousness only dwells therein. So man, if we're gonna get involved in this thing, we need to be living our lives in such a way that the things that are righteous will continue. They'll continue to pay out dividends because we've invested in the right thing in the right way. Well, the new heaven and the new earth is the place where only righteousness dwells in stark contrast to this present evil world, right? Galatians 1.4, wherein dwelleth unrighteousness, right? So any investment in that righteous place must be a righteous investment. And that really brings us to our second point, the investment preparation. The preparation. So God, through the Apostle Peter, says, what manner of men ought ye to be? Knowing these things, seeing and understanding what the future is all about. Here's the question. What manner of persons ought you to be? So we need to understand what the word manner is really all about. So in your notes, I have this. Your manner is how you habitually live your life. It's your habit of life. It's your manner 
Yes, there will be exceptions, but that just proves the rule. This is the general rule of your life. What does the general rule of behavior, of conduct of your life look like? That is your manner, right? 2 Timothy 3.10, But thou hast fully known, Paul said to Timothy, my doctrine and manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience. You know how I live. Timothy, you understand my manner. You understand how I behave from day to day to day. You, you've seen it in me. Paul warns in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, Be not deceived, because evil communications corrupt what? Good manners. Now, when we say good manners, we're not just talking about folding the napkin on your lap, right, and use the right fork for the right dish. We're not, saying about, we're not talking about saying please and thank you and yes, ma'am. Those are good manners, okay? We're talking about good habitual lifestyle corrupt communication well that ruins good manners doesn't it your manner is now messed up well that's how it's defined in the bible so very simple question i put in your notes what ought to be your manner of long-term investing well it comes directly out of verse number 11 the first one is holy conversation holy conversation notice in first john chapter 3 Verses 1 through 3, Behold, what manner of love, God has a manner too, right? What manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Have you ever just stopped and thought about that? Man, what an amazing love the Lord has. Who are we? What is man that thou art mindful of him? What manner of love this is that we, a bunch of nothings, should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not. Because it knew him not. Do you realize that if this world could see you, Christian, the way that you truly are spiritually in the eyes of God, they'd fall down on their face and try and worship you. Because you're gloriously remade. You are a son of God. The title given to the angels in the Old Testament. That's who you are. Man, the world doesn't know you that way. Why? Because it doesn't know God. Verse 2, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. This is not some prize that we get eventually when we die. We get to become the sons. No, right now, by virtue of our faith in Christ, ye are the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear. It doesn't look like it, what we shall be. Right? I mean, a guy bows his knee and surrenders his heart to the Lord, and he gets up and looks in the mirror. He looks the same right? It doesn't yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Man, this is a view to the future. This is a view to the promise of glorification in Christ because of what he did. Now notice verse 3, and every man that hath this hope in him, what does he do? He purifies himself. He purifies himself. Do you have that hope in you? Do you have the hope and the knowledge and the understanding that you are today the son or daughter of God? Do you understand the love that he bestowed on you to make you that? Do you realize who he has made you in Christ, even though it doesn't look like it? Even though you're still stuck in this earth suit, even though we're still stuck walking around this present evil world, even though things in our life aren't always great, do you understand who you really are and what his plan is for you? If that hope is in you, you purify yourself. You know what that is? What manner of persons ought you to be? What's your manner of long-term investing? Well, holy conversation. That's what it is. Man, you're going to do that if you have this hope in you. Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 13. Wherefore? Gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. How? As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. Man, once you're saved, don't go back and live like a lost guy. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all, here it is, manner of conversation. There you have it. Because it is written, be ye holy for I am holy. So how do you invest in eternity? What is your practice and what is the procedure and how are you going to walk through this thing? Well, you're going to invest with holy conversation, live a holy, 
separated, righteous life. Dedicate your life's activities to pleasing the Lord and advancing His kingdom. You separate your life unto service to God. And you also do it with, I have letter B, godliness. It mentions both. They're not the same. Let me just say this, 1 Timothy 4, 7 and 8, but refuse profane and old wives' fables and exercise thyself rather unto godliness. Hang on for a second. Do you realize as we're looking at these things, 1 John 3, 3 said, he that has this hope in him purifies himself. You do this. This is not God purifying you. This is not your position in Christ. This is the way you practice and live it out. He purifies himself. What does it say here? It says in 1 Timothy 4, exercise thyself rather unto godliness. So the comparison is made. Bodily exercise profiteth little. But godliness, notice, is profitable unto all things, having the promise of the life, oh, that now is. Godliness, by the way, will help you through a lot of issues in your life today. But not only that, and of that which is to come. So frequently we talk about what are the things you should spend your life seeking after? Well, we should seek after the things that are eternal. And you might be in a Bible study or a conversation and somebody would say, well, what are the things that are eternal? And almost everybody who's been around for any time would know, well, there's only two things. It's the Word of God and it's the souls of men. Have you ever said that? Have you ever heard that? Of course. The Word of God is eternal. Heaven and earth will pass away. My words will never pass away. And the souls of men are of eternal. If you're a human being and you've been born, you're going to live forever somewhere, either with God in heaven or without Him in a place called hell. And so everybody's soul is eternal. We need to invest the Word of God into the souls of men. But right here, isn't it clear? There's a third thing, isn't there? Godly character. Godly behavior, by the way, is profitable, not just for now, but it's also an investment in then. You see that? So godliness is profitable, not just for now. You want to invest in things that will last? You want to invest in the Word of God. You want to invest in the souls of men. But you know what you need to also invest in? Practicing godliness exercising yourself unto godliness. Let's go back to 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 14. It says, Wherefore, beloved, right, seeing that you look for the future, for these things that are coming, right, what are you supposed to do today? It says, be diligent. Be diligent. Well, that's interesting because that's a common theme in 2 Peter. If you went back to 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 5, Remember when we started this whole procedure of the steps of the seven things that you add to your faith to grow in spiritual growth and maturity? How do, you, how do you walk through these seven steps? By applying diligence. That's how you do it, right? That's chapter 1 and verse number 5. Verse number 10 is kind of the same way, right? In verse number 10 it says, Wherefore the rather brethren give diligence to make your calling and election sure. So there's something you are to do. You are to give diligence for these things. Verse number 15 similarly has the same thing. I want you to always have these things in remembrance. You endeavor, you work towards it, you apply diligence to do it. You make sure that you see that your pursuit of spiritual maturity is something that you diligently put effort toward so that you can do that. So you are to be diligent in pursuit of that today. Oh, and tomorrow. and The day after that. Every day of your working life how long are we to work oh yeah we heard already we're supposed to work as long as we're alive and we rest when we make it to the millennium so every day of your working life why because this is the kind of spiritual investment that's required it requires discipline it requires preparation we are preparing this investment Similar to any good financial strategy you would have in this life, right? The, the best way to have a good financial strategy, right? We, we utilize the Dave Ramsey stuff here, and it's really good, and we encourage everybody to go through it. The quickest way to get rich, Dave Ramsey would say, is get, get rich fast is to get rich slow. Start early and put a little bit away all the time throughout your entire working life. And if you'll do that, then you'll be in good shape by the time you need it, right? Isn't that kind of the idea? Well, that's what we're talking about here as well. Start early. You say, well, I'm old and I haven't done it yet. Start today. You say, well, I am young. Well, I, I thought I'd get around to it eventually. No, start today. Start today. Start investing in holy conversation and godliness. Start living your life in a way that will lay up in store for you things that moth and rust can't corrupt or destroy, right? 
Paul had this kind of a manner of life in his ministry. Go to Acts chapter 17 and verse number 2. Interestingly, when it talks about Paul's missionary ministry, it said, And Paul, notice, as his manner was, went in unto them in the synagogue, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures. You can study the book of Acts and see this repeated over and over and over again. What was Paul's manner? What was his habitual way of life in his ministry of the Word of God? Well, he typically would start by going into a town as, a, as an ordained rabbi and go into a synagogue and take the Scriptures and preach Jesus Christ. And the people that would get saved, he'd take them out and he'd start a church. That was his manner. That was his habitual way to live. But not everybody exercises that kind of discipline. A lot of people squander all of that for themselves now. And so there's a warning in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, where it says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, notice, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day, the day of the Lord, approaching. So there's something about some people There are some people who have their manner, their habitual way of living is, to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Now, you're here today. Congratulations. This is great. But some people, so your manner, what is your manner of life concerning gathering together with the body of Christ? Is your habitual manner to always gather? And of course there's exceptions. Of course there's situations that pop up on an occasional day where you can't make it. That's fine. But what is your habit? Do you habitually, faithfully participate in the corporate body of Christ and exercising your gift of service and adding to the advancement of God's work through this church? Or is it your habit, your manner, to kind of do whatever you want and, hey, you know, every once in a while I might show up. You know, it's Christmas. All right, you know, my, you know, my mom invited me. Or is your ma- what is your manner of life? He warns, look, the manner of some is to forsake the assembling. And you know what? We need to have our investment strategy include faithfully valuing the assembling of ourselves together. And if we'll do that, if we'll have that discipline, if we'll exercise those things in our life, then you're going to benefit from it. And this is our last point that we're looking at today, the investment payout. The investment payout. Because it says in verse number 14, that ye may be found of him that you may be found of him. That means that Jesus Christ is going to come back, and when he does, there is going to be a day of reckoning. There's going to be a day of giving account. He will return, amen? A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, and we talk about those prophetic markers, and we talk about a thousand years as a day, and a day is a thousand years, and the six days of creation, and the six thousand years of man, and the seventh day God rested, and the seventh day is the millennial day, and, and we all amen and hallelujah, and we get excited thinking about that. We're going to have a conference in October, and we're going to talk about that in more detail, and everybody loves prophecy, and everybody wants to talk about the coming of the day of the Lord, and sometimes we forget it's a day of reckoning. It's a day of giving account. And when he comes, he will find you doing something. What will he find you doing, right? What will he find you doing? Because based on how he finds you, well, that will determine the payout, right? Whether you have been faithfully and systematically disciplined in a manner of life with holy conversation and godliness or not. That's really what we're looking for. So Luke chapter 18 and verse number 8 says it this way, I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Notice, nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? You can personalize that. When he finds you, will he find faithfulness in you? Isn't that what we all want? It's what I want. Listen, a healthy fear of the Lord a healthy fear of the judgment seat of Christ. I'm not ashamed to say that that motivates me. It motivates me to not do the foolish things that my mind thinks, oh, that would be fun. No, don't do that. There's a day of reckoning. And I know it's real. I believe it. The scriptures make it clear. And so in this verse, in verse 14, it says, how does he want to find you? That you may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. Right? We could say it this way, calm, clean, and clear. (laughs) Right, that he might be found of you, that you would be calm, that you would be in peace. 
not plagued with trouble, anxiety, depression, fear. He would find you in peace, calm. That he would find you without spot, clean, not like Lot that we saw in an earlier chapter where he was, his, his, he was vexed. He was a righteous man. He was a just man, but he was vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. May he not find you spotted in, from this world and the filth that's in it. May he find you blameless, clear conscience, not full of guilt or shame or regret. Man, you don't want to have the Lord split the sky, call your name, come up hither, meet him in the sky, and think, man, I meant to get around to that, and I just didn't do it in time. Regret. Man, may you not be that person. In other words, be faithful to the end. And here's why. Because your faithfulness to the very end, you will find directly influences your maximum payout of this investment. I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 19, and I'm going to read a fairly long little parable, and it's familiar to many of you. I want you to understand it in the context of what we're talking about. Luke 19, starting in verse number 11, it should come up on the screen as well. And as they heard these things, he added and spake a parable, because he was nigh to Jerusalem, And because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. He said, therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. You can get the symbolism and the picture that God is painting here. A certain nobleman is God or Jesus Christ, the king, right? He goes and he he went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and he's going to return. And he called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds and said unto them, Occupy till I come. Now this is a place where you need to know a little bit about Old English because the idea is he took ten servants, the number of the Gentiles, and he gave them ten pounds, which is British money. This is not a Jewish story for a Jewish audience. And he says, Occupy until I come. Now when we think of occupy, you think, I am currently occupying. This space. That's not what he means. Literally, the word occupy means to trade, to buy, and to sell. What he's looking for is for them to turn a profit with the resources that he has entrusted to them. That's what he's looking for, right? So he says, go out, buy, sell, trade, turn a profit. That's his, that's his instruction to them. I am giving you resources, and I want you to turn a profit. Verse number 14, but his citizens hated him and sent a message after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. And it came to pass that when he was returned, here's the day of reckoning, having received the kingdom, then he commanded these servants to be called unto him to whom he had given the money that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained 10 pounds. Wow. And he said unto him, Well, thou good servant, because thou hast been faithful in a very little. Notice, have thou authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained five pounds. And he said likewise to him, Be thou also over five cities. And another came, saying, Lord, behold, here is thy pound, which I have kept laid up in a napkin. For I feared thee, because thou art an austere man, Thou takest up that thou layest not down, and reapest that thou didst not sow. And he said unto him, Out of thine own mouth will I judge thee, thou wicked servant. Thou knewest that I was an austere man, taking up that I laid not down, and reaping that I did not sow. Wherefore then gavest not thou my money into the bank, that at my coming I might have required mine own with usury, or in other words, at least gotten an interest percentage. And he said unto them that stood by, Take from him the pound, And give it to him that hath ten pounds. And of course, God's people are always right on it. They say in verse 25, Lord, he hath ten pounds. Verse 26, For I say unto you, that unto everyone which hath shall be given. And from him that hath not, even that he hath shall be taken away from him. 
but those mine enemies, which would not that I should reign over them, bring hither and slay them before me. So he wants them to go and he wants them to turn a prophet. And some of them did well and some of them did not. And so what I want you to see, and this is in your notes, that your payout in eternity is in direct proportion to your faithfulness. Man, that is so good. I have to say it again. Your payout in eternity is going to be noticed in direct proportion to your faithfulness. One received one pound, and he turned it into ten. How many cities did he reign over? Ten. One received one pound, and he turned it into five. How many cities did he reign over? Five. One received one pound and did nothing with it. What did he get? Nothing. There's something to remember here, folks. Listen, faithfulness in investing God's resources down here results directly in the amount that he can trust you with in reigning over literal cities in the millennial kingdom. The Bible says we are to rule and reign with Jesus Christ. Have you ever wondered how he figures that thing out? To whom much is given, much is required. If you're faithful over a little, you can be faithful over much. Our life today in this earth, friends, is nothing but a test. It is a test of your faithfulness. Are you faithful with the little he has entrusted you with now? Because if you are, then he knows that you are a trustworthy servant. And he can trust you with more then. And so in the millennial kingdom, don't be surprised. You heard it here first. (laughs) Don't be surprised when you look around those streets of gold and you see others. You might be surprised who they are. You might not. I think we'll all be a little surprised at who really receives the rewards and who really doesn't, right? I mean, don't be fooled by a guy who just wears a microphone. Uh, Don't be fooled by somebody who works behind the scenes and you're not really aware of what they're doing. God's got this thing worked out. You take his resources and you invest them into things that will last forever. And he will directly, in proportion with your faithfulness, reward you to rule and reign with Jesus Christ. And if you don't invest them, oh, you will make it into the kingdom because you are eternally secure by his grace. But you will rule and reign over nothing. Nothing. For a thousand years. For a thousand years. That's the way it's set up. Listen, y'all, prophecy is ridiculously practical. If it's just a mental exercise for you to, you know, look into your Bible crystal ball to see the future, it's just not helping you. It's got to help you put legs on it. You have to have handles. You need to know that any man who has this hope in him purifies himself. What manner of persons ought you to be? That's what it's really all about. So, The thing he wants us to remember is that we're to finish strong. That's the last thing in your notes. Finish strong, y'all. Jesus did, right? John chapter 4 and verse 34, Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. We know that he did that in John 17, 4. I've glorified thee on the earth, Jesus said to the Father. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. The Apostle Paul was able to say that in 2 Timothy 4, 6, and 7. For I am now ready to be offered. His physical life was at the end, right? The time of my departure is at hand. I've fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I've kept the faith. Paul had his own course, and he had to finish his course. Do you realize that you have your own course? And your course is not my course, and my course is not your course. Oh, there's guiding principles for all of us. But the details to which God called you to finish your course are the details to which he called you. And he wants you to finish strong. So there's an example of a man Paul exhorts in Colossians chapter 4 and verse number 17 named Archippus. And I would say that we could put our own name in that blank. You could say, and to say unto Jeff, take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord that you do your best and see how it goes. No, that thou fulfill it. That's what you're to do. You're to fulfill the ministry God has given to you, Archippus. Put your name in that blank. He wants you to finish strong because your payout in eternity is in direct proportion to your faithfulness. 
The question you need to ask yourself is, do you know what God has given you to do? Do you know? Well, some things are very clear. There may be things that are very specific that you and the Lord work out between you. But how about the ministry of reconciliation? That's in black and white. How about go into all the world and make disciples of all nations? That's pretty clear, isn't it? I mean, are you doing that? How about forsake not the assembling of yourselves together? How you doing there? How about study to show yourself approved? You doing that? I mean, these are things he's called us to. How about be holy as I am holy? I mean, we could go on and on and on. These are things that are written in black and white that we are all specifically called to do. Now, the details of which you invest that in a children's ministry or an older children's ministry or a teenage ministry or a young adult or an older adult or however God has you play that out, God bless you. That's your business. Those are the specifics that God will lead you to do. But man, let me just encourage you. Listen, y'all. I, I mean, I, I believe it. I mean, I think, I mean, our toes are hanging over the diving board. There just isn't much time left. We're at the jumping off point. I mean, don't be foolish. Don't quit now, right? I mean, you've made it this far. The end is so near. You don't want to quit now, right? You've done really well. So let's wrap it up with these questions for reflection and we're done. Can you see the forecast of the future? This physical stuff around us, y'all, obviously, it's not going to last. So why do you want to live for it now? Number two, what's your manner of life? Ask yourself. Be honest. Look into the mirror of God's Word and be honest. What does your life habitually communicate? Are you a disciplined investor in eternity? Or are you a lukewarm self-server? And last, if the Lord were to return today, how would he find you? How would the Lord find you if he happened to come back today? And he could. Is he going to find you faithfully doing whatever it is he's asked you to do? Some of you young adults, you're praying about a lifetime of vocational ministry. And man, nothing thrills my heart more. And you're involved in preparation and you're studying in a Bible institute and you're doing those things. And you're like, man, the Lord's going to come back so soon. The temptation is this. Forget school, man. Just turn me loose. I've been the guy saying that. Let me just tell you, if God's called you to prepare, then he should find you preparing. Don't worry about what you didn't have time to get around to because he cut the time short. That's his business, right? I promise he will take care of you. You'll be fine. What he wants to find you doing is faithfully doing Whatever it is he's asked you to do, right? Because if not, well, then you're going to be embarrassed. Then you're going to be ashamed. And these are the questions that we have to ask ourselves. So let's bow our heads and let's close our eyes and let's pray and let's ask the Lord to do his work in us that he needs to do.